You're listening to Out of Nowhere, a series featuring emergent brands with somewhat unexpected origins. Your host is Justin Watkins of Native Digital, a marketing firm specializing in brand messaging and performance media. Let's jump in. We'll usually say that we're a performance-driven chemical manufacturer that makes functional barrier coatings, which allow for you to make ordinary materials perform extraordinarily. Um, what I mean by that is like, this is generally how I uh, explain it is if we talk about like a regular loose leaf sheet of paper and you run that underwater or oil, it'll disintegrate, it'll fall apart. And so you really start to ask whoever you're speaking to, to think about and to visualize why is it that food packaging itself and it's paper-based does not do the same thing. And so that's when we start to explain and, and kind of go into some detail about what we do in that we create these coatings, these barrier coatings that provide functionality to materials, ordinary materials like paper to help them behave extraordinarily in extraneous circumstances. So generally speaking, plastic is the preferred method for drinks, food or whatever to be served in like a to-go container or whatever the case may be. Uh, and some CPG packaging. And so anyone who's looking to switch to a more sustainable option or to other versions and, and stand out with their packaging um, generally looks to paper, but paper is not the best performing product on the market for functional barrier properties. And so that's where we make our coatings. They're, they're fully safe and they're performance driven. And so when they're applied onto certain things, they help them perform without the use of any harmful chemicals. And so we're the only chemical company that's dedicated from day one to being completely PFAS or forever chemical free. Um, so we're the only ones in the industry that are entirely doing that. Um, and we have been for a while. And when you explain that, do, do people grasp the importance of this and, and why you have such a drive for it? I think so. Um, again, I think the context matters, depends who I'm talking to. You know, in some cases, what we'll do is if it's someone who's not from the industry, but someone who might have significant impact, let's say it's a financial stakeholder uh, or a potential financial stakeholder, then we'll talk about a number of things. The first thing is like everyone knows about Teflon nonstick cookware, right? Everyone knows that it's carcinogenic. You shouldn't use it. And it's it's pretty dangerous for you. No one really wants to use items in their household that are filled with cancerous chemicals. But that is the vast majority of what chemicals that are on the market are in today. That's what they have. And so um, we try to visualize or help someone visualize their kids or their pets or their themselves even using these chemicals or, or products that contain these harmful chemicals. Um, and we try to you know portray the fact that we're the only safe option on the market that actually works. So if you if you look for any, literally any, um, alternative that actually can match the performance of what you were previously using. We're literally like one of the only options in the, in the market. So, um, you know, that's a nice place to be in. Yeah. So when you're talking with, when you're talking with people, whether it's, uh, uh, investors, staff, potential customers, partners, uh, other brands, is it, is it the safety message that gets their attention or is it the sustainability or is it the performance of the product? Like which one usually tends to stand out the most or is the headline like the lead? 
we like to lead with performance. We think mm -hmm. performance is the best thing because the reality is what we've seen in the market. And I think a lot of investors have seen this too, is that everyone touts that they want responsible or uh, sustainability, but they aren't willing to pay for it. And they're certainly not going to pay for it if it doesn't perform as well as the old stuff. And so we have found for the better part of the decade that we've been doing this now um, that we need to have performance first. If we cannot match or beat the performance of the existing product that we're trying to displace, then very likely we will not be the option cho chosen. So we first lead with performance. That's generally how we always try to address it. But we'll say like, we create functional, we're the only company that creates functional barrier coatings without carcinogenic chemicals or without PFAS chemicals. And so generally people get both of the performance and the sustainability right. in the first sentence. Just depends on who, again, who we're talking to. Yeah. So in the early days, um, who were, how would you describe like the people who got it first or early adopters or who the ones were like, oh, finally, or, or I really believe in this. I, we, we were waiting for this to come along. Who were those? There were a lot, <laughs> definitely a lot of supporters, also a lot of non-supporters, but that's okay. Um, it's usually a good sign. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had a lot of that, but <laughs> you know, it, a lot of the people from, I think early on that believed in what we were doing really believed in me and believed in the story uh, and believed in like what we were trying to accomplish and how we were going about it. Um, and for those that maybe were skeptical at first, I think the the other thing that I was always very keen on was I, I was not afraid of asking for help. And so I, even if someone didn't agree with me, I found that as separately found it as motivation, but aside from that, found it a really good opportunity to understand, well, what does that person think that is non not achievable? Or what is it that we aren't convincing him or her on? And then how do we figure it out? You know, so that the next time I speak to someone who might have the same values or opinions or whatever, uh, doesn't feel the same way. So I've always been open to critics or to, to any level of, um, criticism or denial or whatever it may be from anyone. Um, so, you know, I think the early supporters were a lot of mentors. I mean, a lot of people who believed in, in me, um, I was part of a youth entrepreneurship program pretty much every single year since I started the company, um, possibly even two programs a year. So I've gone through a lot of accelerators, a lot of incubators. And again, not everyone believed in what we were doing, but for those that did, I, I clung on to that and, and, you know, really utilized as much as we could from the mentorship that was available. Um, and then eventually, you know, we got our first investors who believed in us. Um, and, and, you know, one of the first ones was one of my professors uh, who brought me to, to my school uh, that I went to for undergrad and Eventually, we also had someone paired into that round uh, who was an MBA student from from the school. Um, and so we just we, you know, we we found people that believed in what we were doing and were willing to back us, whether that meant mentorship, money, uh, just advice, one off or potentially even just purchasing some product. And that was good enough for me. Yeah. Was there an inflection point where things started to really pick up the pace and you're like, okay, this is next level. Like we're for sure leveling up and we're talking now we're, we've unlocked like a whole different group or the receptiveness is just so much more uh, right in front of us. Like we can see it. Yeah. There were two main inflection points. I think there's probably even a third one that was rather recent, um, but really the the first two are, I think the, the main 
inflection points in the company that changed the company's trajectory. The first one was um, getting on Shark Tank. So in 2018, January of 2018, we had aired the episode, but I had filmed it in the early fall of 2017. And so once I got onto the show, that was a pretty eclectic moment, but I didn't necessarily know if we were going to air. And so when we got the announcement that we were airing, um, that level of engagement and attack and eyeballs and impressions and everything that we had as a company, and then being able to convert that allowed us to finally establish what I call like a, a real company. Um, so in that moment, you know, overnight, we saw pretty much overnight success, at least for us at the time, it wasn't that much money, actually, when you come to think about it. Um, but, you know, like earning 300K over the course of a couple of days on your website alone, when previously, you know, you had, you maybe had done that throughout the entire company's existence uh, was really, really pivotal for us. And what the first thing that we did was one, we vertically integrated our manufacturing as, as much as we could. Um, so that was the first step. And the second step was, which was simultaneous, uh, was hiring what I like to call our first gray hairs. Some of them were not gray haired. Some of them were just older, but, but first real employees that were full-time, not recent graduates from undergrad or not current college students. And so that's what really leveled up the company in the very beginning. And we had allowed us to bring in individuals who, who had experience and could guide the company through tough waters that we probably were not going to be able to get through if we didn't have that help. And so that was the first step, hiring the right people, hiring the first set of people that were full-time, like my CFO is a good example. It's, you know, the one of the very hires I made was our, our CFO, which was a phenomenal choice at the time. Um, and then, you know, the second inflection point was uh, about a year and a half later, actually almost two years later, um, right before COVID, because we had raised in mid-2019, right upon me graduating my undergrad, I had raised our seed round, about a million bucks from some institutional angel groups. And once we raised the money, that was you know kind of said and done and whatever. And we had some plans with the money. But what really happened was we were we used partial amounts of that money to further vertically integrate and automate our manufacturing. And then from there, just by happenstance, like we had ordered our fully, one of our, we now have a couple of them, but we had one fully automated assembly line that was coming together. Um, and we had purchased it at the end of 2019 with delivery due in March of 2020. And just by happenstance, you know, we received the machine, I think it was like mid-March, like maybe a couple of days prior to COVID officially touching down here in the US and having a complete lockdown in, in Massachusetts. Um, it just so happened to be that like, as a chemical manufacturer who has just started to bring in equipment to expand their capacity was in the right place at the right time. Um, and we were able to release a number of COVID related products, hand sanitizers, disinfectants, and then our textile, this was like a big thing for us. We had um, an antimicrobial coating that came out that year uh, for textiles that could be applied at industrial mills. And it was proven at the university, at Northeastern University, um, that if you applied it onto a regular cotton piece of fabric and used it as a face mask, that that cotton face mask 
was as effective and in some cases more effective than a surgical grade 3MN95 mask. And that's what put us on the map in these textile coatings, industrialized coatings for hospitality. Um, and that was really the pivotal moment. So it was actually COVID that that did a lot for us. Now, granted, you know, that was a deliberate decision. We ultimately at the time had a very, very tough decision to make because we had shut down for two weeks and I was staring at our books and I was thinking, man, I mean, I don't know when this thing's going to end. I don't know if we have time to wait. We just took investor money six months ago. Like, what are we going to do? Um, and frankly, a million dollars for us at that point in time was really not that much anymore. Uh, we would be burning that pretty quickly. And so, you know, we we just, we sprung into action. We We had to make some tough calls and we realized, you know, what are we best at? Well, we're a chemical manufacturer who makes everything that we possibly can vertically, you know, ourselves. And so we started looking at how we can be part of the solution for COVID. And that's that's what ultimately became a, a nice pivotal moment for the company. That's cool. Whenever, um, whenever you're talking amongst your team, like, are there, there sounds like there's two or three of those big moments. Is there one that you guys reflect back on the most? Or do you guys say, nah, no, no time for reminiscing. Like we just got to look at the next one. Like, how does that, how do those convos conversations go internally? Yeah, it's the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not one to reminisce. Um, not to say that I'm not sentimental. I, I am as a person um, to some degree, but I'm, you know, as I was answering the North Star uh, question, call it, um, I kept thinking to myself that while I was answering it, it's interesting because for me, my North Star continuously always changes. And I really love the Matthew McConaughey quote where he says, my hero is me 10 years from now. Um, and I really believe in that, that that's how I am. That's how I think the company is. Um, you know, I love everything that we've been able to accomplish today and, and yesterday and what we'll accomplish tomorrow, but we're not done yet and we're not anywhere close to done yet. And so the reality is, is that I don't really have time to stop and smell the roses. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that's just how we kind of approach things today. Yeah. That might change, but today we seldom ever really take any time to to reflect on what we've done in the idea of, wow, those were good times or imagine those days. Um, if we reflect, we reflect with the, the, the idea that we are looking at something to improve a future occurrence or something like that. Let me tell you a topic that our team has been discussing because I'd love to hear your take on it. We, we talk about how sometimes in business and in marketing, you get this there's this instinct that like progress is just doing more and like, we got new ideas, let's pursue them all. And then the problem is, is it creates this like baggage and then you're like maintaining all these ideas that you've stood up, but it's not popular to cut those things because you admit defeat or somebody else was behind that. You don't want to cut defeat, but you really need to get, in our opinion, like that's very popular. Um, it's a, it's a popular way to pursue things, but then pretty soon it's just, it slows everything down. And so you kind of get to this more like what we call like a more curated approach of like, Hey, let's, be very skeptical about all these ideas and including the ones that we're currently activating. And let's set some pass fail criteria on this stuff and let's be more precise about it. And our opinion is like a lot, when we share that, a lot of people agree with it. I don't think a lot of people do it though. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah. So we do two, two things that I think are similar. Um, number one, we're also skeptical about things. We try to really come to the table with data. And if there isn't data available, then we market or, you know, we'll think about something with data in mind and we'll quickly audit things as soon as we have data available. 
Um, I like to operate with the Eisenhower matrix. And I taught my team about that a few months ago, or maybe like a year ago at this point. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of it. I, I like categorizing what I need to do now, how urgent it is and, you know, how important it is. Um, and that really helps understand whether, you know, the task is going to be something that we do now, later, or if we delegate it. And so for me, I think one, the Eisenhower matrix is, is key uh, in helping that because you're right. I mean, if you have too many things on the plate, then almost nothing gets done. Um, you get like this just writer's block essentially, and you don't want to do anything. And that has happened before. So that's one thing. And the second thing is in our project management tools. So for example, if like we're using Notion, um, if we have a whole slew of projects done or listed out, um, and we have deadlines for all of them. And we're seeing that we're starting to approach certain things and we're not able to meet the deadlines or this is no longer as much of a priority, but it's something that we would like to do in the future. It becomes a future project and it sits there and maybe on a quarterly basis, we'll review it and see if it's something that we want to bring back up. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I'm the same way. I, I hate not executing. Um, and so for me, it's all about okay, if we have an idea, let's let's write it down. Let's figure out if this is the right time and place to execute it. And if it is, great. And if it's not, um, you know, when will be? And we might not have that answer right away. So we just, we set it aside. Yeah. As you think about all the progress that you guys have made so far and just where you guys have come and like the, and how you've kind of advanced things and you look at the industry as a whole, or maybe just your own company, like are there things on the horizon that you say, man, I'm really... Uh, excited about this that might be five or 10 years off for us or for the industry? Or do you have any of those like predictions that nobody else agrees with of like, I think we're going there as an industry or as a company and nobody else suspects that anything that comes to mind with that? I mean, yeah, I, I think everything that we're doing kind of falls <laughs> into that category. I think, you know, my industry right now is under a lot of spotlight. I just read uh, yesterday, Bank of America came out with a, with a massive like research paper that they shared with, um, I guess some of their banking clients, I, I don't know exactly. I got it from one of my investors. Um, and uh, it, it mentioned that they're seeing that $10 trillion are being deployed by investors or were raised by investors to tackle the PFAS problem. That's mm -hmm. a huge amount of money. And so we've known that PFAS has been an overarching issue for a long time now. In fact, I mean, the EU has proposed a ban last year that's going into effect by 2026 uh, that all PFAS is just being banned outright in the EU, which is a huge, like groundbreaking piece of legislation because PFAS is used in literally everything that you can think of. It's from your computer chips to your screen, to your glasses, to the, the paint that's on your, or varnish that's on like the table you're sitting at. It's literally in everything. Um, and it's a phenomenal chemistry in terms of its performance. So there's a reason why it's used in everything. And now with we have leg legislation and, and regulatory tailwinds that are um, kind of helping propel the issue forward. It again puts us at the right place in the right time because 10 years ago, no one gave a, sh you know, no one cared at all about PFAS. No one even talked about, no one even knew what it was. And so if you were not in the industry back then, no one cared. And so back then we actually got very, very, the reason why we're so performance um, mantra driven is because 
early on in 2013 to maybe 2017, no one cared about PFAS. No one knew what it was. And so when we talked about it and when we said we were the non-toxic option on the market, everyone either asked, okay, well, what does that mean and how? Or we don't really care because we just care for it to perform. Now people really care about the sustainability or at least they're claiming to um, until you tell them that the price is more expensive. <laughs> so um, we have found that you know leading with performance kind of solves that issue. And that puts us in a super unique position because again, we're the only company that is solely performance driven, but we don't compromise on the safety of the products. Um, and so that's a really unique position to be in because we have 10 years worth of experience ahead of the 3Ms, the DAOs, the DuPonts of the world. And generally when we fundraise, like when we raised our series A with, you know, tier one VC groups, the first question is like, well, why hasn't 3M done this? I mean, when I was on Shark Tank, on Shark Tank, we had the same question, like, why doesn't someone else do this? Why doesn't DuPont do this? And the question is they've tried, they, they've been trying to do it. And the reality is that 3M is committing to getting rid of all PFAS within the next couple of years, but they're going to find it's a, actually a much harder road to get to because all of the IP that we filed for you know, it's been around now, you know, we've been around for 10 years and it took five years, almost six years worth of R&D to get to even the first kind of scale up quantities that we were able to produce. And so it took a lot of effort to get to where we are today. Um, and that's not to say that 3M doesn't have brilliant minds that could figure that could figure it out. They could, but it's going to have to be a completely different mechanism, completely different way, and completely different structure. We're a plug and play solution for the industry today. So we're just, I'm really excited that I think we're finally going to get really adopted this year. Um, there's just a lot that's going on. And I think we're going to have a lot of adoption from all of our industrial coatings, from other things that we're doing. It's just, it's an exciting time for the company as long as we can execute. <laughs> that's cool. Timing is so critical. And it sounds like you're you're in a good spot with that. Is there, even with all the momentum that's now picking up, for not only you, but just the industry. And, you know, you see some of these regulatory moves and that type of thing. Are there any misconceptions that you run into that you are frustrated by? You're like, they just don't get it. And like, we need them to understand this so we can keep with the momentum. Is there anything in the industry or with partners or anything that's like preventing progress and adoption that should be happening? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, again, we're, we're cost we either cost neutral or a slight premium. So no one ever wants to pay more for something. Uh, people hate being forced to change. Uh, so that's very, you know, very difficult. And then also, I mean, I compete where I, I, I sell into industries that are pretty antiquated industries with pretty antiquated thought processes. Um, so when you're talking about selling into the paper industry, paper mills are hundreds of years old, you know, decades, 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 and decades old. And so the reality is, is that a lot of times people don't want to change. I mean, why should they? Why would they? And they never have. So why would they now? And that is generally the, the thought process with a lot of companies. But for us, again, I think there are a number of things that are driving adoption. Number one, it's the legislative tailwinds. Um, but number two, there's also regulatory or sorry, not regulatory, but uh, litigation based tailwinds mm -hmm. as well, because there's a ton of lawsuits. I think uh, I forget what the. Bank of America report said, but it was in, in the billion, multi-billions of pending litigation um, just in the US alone for companies that are using PFAS. And this includes like brands like a Walmart that would, like a retailer that would sell it all the way to the actual manufacturer. So it, no one's safe, you know, if, uh, if you're using it or if you're found using it. 
Um, even tertiary packaging that's used in 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 food food service um, chains, you know, food service chains are getting lawsuits for this stuff when they don't even make or sometimes even spec the packaging. So it's uh, it's really interesting. But I think ultimately, a lot of consumers are also driving the change because now PFAS is more common, and now people know that it's everywhere and it's in all your water streams and all that. So it's become a lot more prevalent for consumers to start demanding more sustainable options. And the consumers, at least some of them, are willing to pay a little bit more. At least now they are. Um, again, we're not that expensive, especially in comparison to other bio-based solutions on the market. But, um, you know, any change at all is always met with some sort of uh, abrasion unless they're having issues with their, you know, their current production for whatever reason, or, or the current supplier that they're that they're using. So yeah, yeah. I, think, I mean, for us, it's it's you know, it's just a matter of time. Again, I think, you know, it is about timing. But the key about timing is another great quote, which is, uh, "Luck is when preparation meets opportunity," and that's generally what it is for us: is that we're prepared no matter what what it takes. Um, we're constantly trying to level up the company and be prepared for whatever's coming next. Um, and so when that opportunity knocks on the door, we're ready to take it. Hey everyone, we've learned a lot from this podcast series and we've put the good stuff in a handful of PDF frameworks. It's topics like messaging, channel strategy, and market fit. You can grab them at nativedigital.com slash resources.